0: Welcome to Episode 73 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel mason Today's guest is Shane McLeod. Shane is a research fellow working with the Lowy Institute's Australia p network. Before joining the Institute, Shane was a senior editor at ABC News in roles where he managed at Sydney Newsroom and the flagship radio programs AM, The World Today and PM. He is a former foreign correspondent with postings in Japan and Papua New Guinea, as well as reporting assignments throughout the Asia-Pacific region. He has also worked as a journalist in regional Queensland, Melbourne, Sydney and Canberra. As we go to air today, PNG has two confirmed cases of COVID-19. Whilst the first case was brought in by a foreigner who had recently arrived in the country, the second case is of a Papua New Guinean. In this episode, Shane and I discuss the relationship between Australia and PNG since independence in 1975, including whether Australia is in fact an embarrassed former colonialist. We also discuss, as we have on a few podcasts now, whether aid to PNG should come at the expense of aid elsewhere, and how much of our support for infrastructure and other sectors is driven by increasing competition with China. Then, of course, we address COVID 19 in PNG as well as Cyclone Herald, which has already hit Fiji and Vanuatu. We discuss how misinformation and fake news have impacted PNG's response to COVID-19. We also discuss the ongoing needs of PNG, including economic assistance and balancing concerns about health with concerns about economic growth. Shane is firmly an optimist when discussing PNG and believes the country has good reason to be positive about its future. Shane and I went to East Sepik in November last year with the Lowy Institute's Australia PNG Emerging Leaders Dialogue. Whilst there, we met with Governor Alan Bird, who is doing much to transform the economy of East Sepik province during his time in office. You'll hear us discuss Governor Bird in this episode and the steps the province is taking to reduce COVID-19 transmission from the Indonesian border. Meanwhile, if you're interested in the impact of COVID-19 on the region, check out devpolicy.org, which covers blogs on the pandemic and Fiji, PNG, the Solomon Islands, Tuvalu, the Pacific as a whole, the Philippines, agriculture, gender-based and other forms of violence and implications for Australian aid, with more being added every day. Before I go, our website has had a makeover. Check it out and let us know your thoughts via any of our social media channels. That's it from me. Enjoy the episode with Shane McLeod. Shane, thanks for being on the show.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Your colleague and friend, Sean Dorney, refers to Australia as an embarrassed colonialist in regards to P&G. Of course, we are in a COVID-19 world and we will come back to the topic of COVID-19 and P&G. But I'd first like to start with that statement by Sean. In your view, is Australia, in fact, an embarrassed colonialist?
1: I'm a big fan of Sean's thinking on this because I think he has hit on the problem that Australia's had in coming to terms with its history, and it's obviously not just this issue. Um, embarrassed, I don't know if I would have used embarrassed. I'd say maybe reluctant or in denial. Um, I think a lot of Australians don't think of Australia as having been a colonial country. They think of themselves as having been colonised or part of a colonised country. But that relationship with PNG, obviously, it was colonialism. And I think a lot of Australians perhaps aren't aware of it, don't really think about it too deeply, but it's obviously a really fundamental issue in the way Australia and Papua New Guinea relate today. It's a pretty negative term, I think, now. But you've kind of got to accept that there is that relationship there and then look forward. You know, one of the things that I think is just fascinating about Papua New Guinea's history is the fact it's been an independent country since 1975 and that it's stepped on from that colonial history. But it has generally a pretty good relationship with its former colonial overseer.
0: Why do you think it is missing from our history in Australia? Like you say, a lot of Australians aren't aware that we were a coloniser. Why did we erase it from the history books?
1: I think because, well, part of it was that, you know, at least part of PNG was as much a territory of Australia as other parts of Australia are and still are today. If you were born and grew up in the southern part of PNG, in the territory of Papua, it had effectively the same status as the Northern Territory in governance terms, obviously a really different kind of experience for people who lived in that part of PNG. But as a result, it wasn't seen as some dramatically long, you know, far-flung colonial territory. It was just seen as part of Australia up to the point where it wasn't. And so many Australians... Had connections to PNG, whether through family, whether through working there themselves, whether it it was just every day. Um, It was part of what was going on in the life of Australia up to the point that it wasn't. And that, that movement from being part of Australia to not being part of Australia was quite quick. So I don't think a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about it. I say all this, it predates me. I mean, my personal history matches PNGs. I've been around since 1975 as well. So for me, there's never been anything other than an independent PNG.
0: You said there that the process of being an Australian colony and then being independent happened quite quick, which it did compared to other processes of decolonisation. The PNG Australia process was very quick. Before we move on, can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, well, it was really quick because I think there was a really – Um, fast realisation within um, Australia's government that it wasn't sustainable. Um, It wasn't going to be something that Australia probably could support. But also at that time, I think there was a recognition that it had to happen. And I think everyone who has looked into this and, and thought about it acknowledges that not enough work was done by Australia perhaps to prepare for that Um, things like education systems, um, development and training of of governance systems weren't as strong as they could have been. But it's been interesting to watch that and also see the process more recently in Bougainville Um, and similar concerns being raised. People saying, oh, is Bougainville ready for independence? Is Bougainville ready to stand on its own two feet? If everything has to be perfect for a country to stand stand independently, then you're always going to find a reason for it not to happen. Countries don't get created by... Fantastically well managed bureaucratic processes. Sometimes it can be really difficult. Sometimes it can be relatively painless. It's pretty rare that it's ever perfect. You know, my personal view is that it was fast. Obviously, more could have been done to prepare, prepare for it. But at the same time, how do you stop it? You know, once once you know that it has to happen, how do you stop it from happening? Or how do you go slow? How do you deny people that?
0: But unlike decolonisation from Australia, the Bougainville process towards the referendum was long and uh, a lot of preparation went into it. How do you think the two independence processes compare?
1: Bougainville's is obviously born from a much more um, difficult process. You know, the the civil conflict on Bougainville was so violent and so disruptive for so many lives um, and so many people were killed um, that I think watching that referendum process from afar last year, there was just a an amazing outpouring of relief and sense of achievement for people who'd been through that. For PNG's independence it obviously wasn't as uh, born from conflict, but it was still an amazing achievement to create a country to be that first generation of leaders, some of whom still in parliament. Um I just think it's it's a phenomenal achievement and you know no country is perfect PNG obviously has lots of issues that it's dealing with but Wow, to create an independent country? I just think it's an amazing achievement.
0: On the point that you made about Bougainville being a more complex situation, what is the latest in their independence? process? And is it clear yet whether or not they will become an independent territory?
1: It's sort of stalled a bit amidst um, uh, coronavirus. One of the big challenges right now is that there was meant to be another phase of politics on Bougainville happening in the middle of this year, which was elections for Bougainville's House of Representatives. There's a court challenge going on. The incumbent president, John Momus is seeking to overturn term limits so he could potentially run again as president. And as someone who's been involved in Bougainville's um, politics and its independence for so long, there is a view among some on Bougainville that it would be great to have someone of his stature leading the country through this next phase of negotiations with PNG over independence. There's also a separate view, obviously, that um, he's done two terms, the constitution Set down that presidents could have two terms, so it's time for him to step away. So there's that court challenge going on. Um, it's it's to be resolved, and that will solve that political issue. But then separately, we've got the state of emergency that's been imposed for coronavirus, and that's stopped the writs for the election being issued at all. So there's a lot of uncertainty about politics on Bougainville. Who will be leading the negotiations with PNG to come, and that will have a big. Um, impact on how long those negotiations take and what the negotiations focus on. There's a lot of discussion to come.
0: You did say there that establishing an independent country is a, a huge achievement on the part of PNG, and it is, but of course it hasn't been without issues. You did note there that at the end of colonisation, Australia did leave PNG without particularly strong education or health system. So PNG is the largest recipient of Australia's Overseas Development Assistance However, funding to PNG has come at the expense of some of our other bilateral aid programs in Asia. Is it reasonable that aid to PNG has cost us aid to other countries?
1: Yeah, good question. I think aid to PNG has to be maintained above a lot of other priorities for Australia's government. But I also think aid can't just be about your immediate neighbours and it can't just be about you know, one area of your country's relationships with the world. So Australia has the the resources, Australia has the uh, capacity to do more, and Australia's national interests do extend beyond our immediate region. That said, we do have to put a priority on the countries in our immediate region, the countries that we have our closest relationships with, and really I don't think there is uh, one that is perhaps more important and more deserving than PNG. Um, the amount, um, you know, each year PNG's economy grows and Australia's contribution through development assistance becomes relatively less. Um, it's it's not the days of the 1970s and 80s when it was that huge amount of development assistance that Australia gave and was such a significant part of PNG's economy. It's it's not at that same level now, but we have to maintain it because it's what friends and neighbours do for each other and. Yeah, we talked about that legacy and and P&G has struggled to to do the things that it needs to do in some areas of governance and particularly health has been beset by issues of corruption and mismanagement, but you can't walk away. Um, How you balance that with what we should be doing in the rest of the world, well, I think you need to accept that you need to do both. You can't just prioritise one and ignore the other. And Australia's interests are you know, obviously very significant in Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, but Australia is a, is a citizen of the world as well.
0: You say that Australia has the capacity and the resources to do more in PNG. What do you mean by that? And where would that capacity and resources have to come from?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's always been things happening outside of the development assistance that's part of the, the bilateral agreements, you know, things like defence cooperation. Um Things that happen that can support PNG. I mean, you're seeing evidence of it in the last 12 months with some of the work that's been going on to support PNG's budget. I've written about this and, you know, not everyone agrees. But I think if Australia can help, it should. And the times may not always suit Um, either png or australia for those type of measures to be offered and to be accepted and to be sought Um, but right now it seems that both governments are on the same page in terms of trying to deal with some of the long-term financial challenges that png has and australia has capacity you know for example to loan money to png last year to help get through some of those things Um, australia should do those things it does you know it, it complicates things it complicates um, the relationship it means that you're talking about things that can be quite difficult. So, you know, for example, at the moment the PNG government is talking to the IMF about um, assistance with its finances, and there you, you will no doubt see some ideas being put on the table that are pretty unpalatable to a lot of people in PNG. Things around foreign exchange, for example, and and big changes in uh, governance of state-owned enterprises, that type of thing. I think reflects the growing complexity and sophistication of that relationship between PNG and Australia is that the governments can talk about those sorts of things. Maybe not agree, maybe they agree now, but maybe there's a change of leadership down the track and there's not the same thinking, they're not the same relationship. You've got to have those conversations regardless and keep having them because that's what, you know, a, a high-level relationship looks like.
0: There's also talk of Australia providing budgetary assistance to PNG in the wake of COVID-19, is that correct?
1: Uh, I'm hearing about that. I mean, it may be done through multilateral organisations, but it's definitely something that I think is being discussed at the moment. And Scott Morrison, I think, has raised that prospect uh, with the G20 leaders that developing nations will need help to get through this.
0: Australia refers to China as a partner in the region and appears on the surface to be committed to finding opportunities to work with China and yet some of these investments that we're discussing such as budgetary assistance seem to be in direct competition to China. How would you comment on the relationship between Australia and China and how it plays out in PNG?
1: Yeah it's been interesting to watch. Um, I guess really around APEC in 2018 we've seen that strategic competition, I guess, for the strength of that relationship with PNG's government and China um, taking a more prominent role in its relationship with PNG. Uh, I guess I take the view that it's appropriate for a country like PNG to be looking at all potential development partners and considering, you know, what's the best what's the best option for PNG? And that forces everyone to lift their game. And I think it forces Australia to lift its game and to think about, well, what is it prepared to talk to PNG about and what type of assistance it can offer? I think there is an element of strategic competition to it, obviously um, but that it doesn't have to be exclusive. And if you look at what China potentially brings to the table for PNG, there can be some complementary, Aspects to it, you know, infrastructure development, for example. You know, when things are done at the right price, when things are done with the right infrastructure, there, there are opportunities for countries to partner together and help countries like PNG to get the infrastructure that PNG needs for its economic development. It shouldn't be exclusive. My colleague Jonathan Pryke has written about this. I mean, the the nature of the development relationship that countries of the world have with PNG tends to be overwhelmingly Australia. Australia is a dominant player to the extent that it's unlike a relationship between a developing country and a development partner anywhere else in the world um it's in PNG's interest really it's in Australia's long term interest that there are more countries supporting and helping PNG to develop
0: Australia is also very focused on providing funding for infrastructure projects though so is it complementary that China likes financing infrastructure or is it competitive
1: I think it's competitive but that that should lead to better results for PNG I mean it should result with PNG getting a better deal and getting the best financing and getting access to the best technology that can help it. So I think one of the challenges has been for a long time, countries like Australia weren't really in for talking about big-ticket infrastructure, and that was because Australia was looking in other sectors and other priorities. The consequence of that was that countries that were looking for infrastructure development didn't have as many people that they could talk to, and so you saw projects being proposed and getting a fairly significant way down the development pipeline that you know perhaps they weren't structured the best way they could you know maybe the, the you know the cost that the government was going to wear over a long period of time wasn't the best wasn't the best deal for them so i think that's one of the outcomes of this you know more competitive strategic environment is that a country like png can have a more detailed look at what might be on offer
0: Okay, so let's start to address the giant COVID-19 elephant in the room. So Australia has issued a level four do not travel warning to the entire world, which has repercussions for a number of sectors, but it has repercussions for the aid sector because suddenly a lot of our humanitarian workers that were overseas are no longer overseas. And this is particularly topical as Cyclone Harold has hit Fiji and bears down on Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands. So beginning with that, what impact does the restriction on travel have for the aid sector?
1: Just massively disruptive in the people side of things. So people have had to leave. People have had to quite quickly leave um, in positions where they were, you know, heavily involved in projects. It's really disruptive. Um, there's only so much you can do remotely as well. I think you know, um, technology is getting better all the time, but it really is no substitute for those um, people-to-people collaborations that are happening. Um, an upside, I guess, is that it means that projects are very quickly localizing. So there's opportunity for those outstanding leaders in projects um, in countries like PNG to take on uh, more responsibility and more quickly. Um, and that, you know, that's that's a really good thing. All projects at this point are probably sitting back and thinking about, well, you know, this has been forced on us, but what are the benefits that we can use here? And I think that's a great opportunity for so many of those talented development experts right across the region. Um, And, you know, we could be looking at a situation, for example, where countries in the Pacific are able to get on top of this virus situation because they have the benefit of being able to isolate more, more effectively because of um, ocean borders and things like that, maybe opportunities for, for more mobility within the Pacific um, than there are from the rest of the world into the Pacific. So I think that's, that's a really interesting thing to think about is the expertise that exists right across the Pacific region may have more ability to mobilise and be available across the region than people from um, larger and developed countries.
0: Do you think it is possible to provide remote support in a humanitarian emergency?
1: No, pretty hard. I think like you're looking at the situation in Vanuatu at the moment. Um, If there is outside assistance needed, then one of the factors people are going to be wrestling with is quarantine, Um, because the very last thing people want to be doing in a humanitarian situation is bringing in. A pandemic at the same time. So, the protocols that people are going to need to travel in and out of countries in this situation, you know, we almost go back to a maritime based transport regime, um, but that's just going to have to be factored in.
0: Now, in terms of COVID 19 in PNG, PNG has had one confirmed case of COVID 19 and possibly two, I was hearing yesterday, but the news out of PNG has been quite confusing, which isn't surprising given the prevalence of fake news and misinformation in the media in png how has that epidemic of fake news impacted upon png's response to COVID 19
1: it has been so there are now two confirmed cases in png and it has been in both cases you've had a wave of rumor and misinformation ahead of the confirmations um and that's, that's been disappointing for me, just as an observer, to see, because I know there are so many journalists in PNG who really strive to get good quality information out there. But there is so much rumour and gossip going on that it, tends to, it seems to come ahead of when the official confirmations are happening. One of the other challenges, I think, has been the government's communications have been, shall we say, just a little uncertain in the time leading up to these confirmations. So, in the first case, which was a foreign national who'd flown into PNG via Singapore, there was a statement that it was a probable case. Then there was a announcement that it was a negative case, and then it was confirmed that it was a positive case. All of that leads to um, that that sort of spreading of misinformation, which um, means uh, you know people start reacting, people get worried. I mean, the rumor mill kicks into overdrive in an absence of official information. So. I do think that's sort of incumbent on government officials particularly to be as transparent as they can, but to also you know, be reassuring. And I think after that first initial case, there's been a real effort by PNG's government to to do that clear communication. Unfortunately, we saw it again with the second case in um, East New Britain province. But one of the strengths of East New Britain province is that there's a, a strong local radio station. For example, health officials were able to get on air and assure people about what was going on. Where I do worry is when you get into other parts of PNG where that infrastructure is not as strong. So, one area that I spend a bit of time thinking about is um, the media ecosystem in PNG. And knowing that a lot of those provincial radio stations are really struggling with hard infrastructure, you know, transmitters being offline, studios that aren't functioning. Um, it's really important in a pandemic like this that you can get messages out to a community in a reliable sense. Particularly when, you know, as the internet becomes more accessible for people, even in remote parts of PNG, alongside that goes access to social media where those rumours can spread really quickly.
0: Has the case in East New Britain been traced back to the first case?
1: No, no. And that's actually what's going on at the moment is a lot of that contact tracing and communities around East New Britain have been locked down while that's going on. Um, it's not clear how that this case has happened. It appears to be community transmission. And that, for PNG, is a particular concern. You know, that if if COVID-19 is spreading within the community, then that's, that is a real problem for PNG. But you can see that this isolation contain, track strategy that PNG has available to it is perhaps its strongest defence against this. It's that ability to lock down transport links, that ability to... Get people to stay in their home villages. People are relatively self sustaining in those areas, so you can then send in teams and try to isolate cases and identify how much further the virus has spread. PNG's big challenge is its border with Indonesia. And you've seen in the last couple of days some big efforts by PNG's government to really ramp up um, surveillance along the border and also to really identify any movement of people and get quite tough on people moving across the border.
0: Because there has been an outbreak of cases in West Papua, hasn't there?
1: Yeah, there are cases in West Papua. And I think, you know, you see the governors of the border provinces in PNG are really quite concerned about this. I'm thinking most prominently Alan Bird, who's in um, East Seapic, which isn't directly adjacent, but there's a lot of traffic to and from centres in East Seapic for vanilla trade. And I think that's where their concerns really are. For people to access cash economies, they've been going to, to and fro from Indonesia because they're able to access better prices, apparently, from some of the buyers across the border. But your, you know, your scope for transmission in that environment is pretty high. So that's been the big focus, I think, particularly along the northern border. And the south in western province is just that unknown movement of people across the border and what that means for potential spread.
0: And I know Governor Bird has been quite precise in his communications. However, as you say, the broader media ecosystem can be more problematic. How do you curb the spread of fake news and misinformation, or is it just human nature to speculate and feed the rumor mill?
1: I think the rumor mill is um, you know, part of human civilization. We all love a bit of a chat, and people love a bit of a gossip. Where? I think the challenge is for countries like PNG, where the media is not as strong as it is in, say, Western democracies, and, you know, asterisk, you have to say in Western democracies, the media is under huge challenge as well. Um, the issue is verifiable sources. People who work in crisis communications acknowledge that they don't have complete control over the messages that people receive, particularly when you've got other channels like social media. So it's important that official sources of information are accessible. And comprehensible, and people can weigh them against what they're hearing through the rumor mill. The rumor mill is working at jet speed now with social media, WhatsApp groups, Facebook public groups, things like that. Things move around really quickly. You know, I've seen people commenting recently about recent leaks and gossip in PNG. People saying everyone wants to be the one to share the information. It might help. If the government felt it had more control over the chain of information and people up that chain didn't feel that they needed to or wanted to share information on the way up that chain, um, I think that's one of the challenges PNG's government has is that there is a tendency for officials to let information out that perhaps needs to be, I don't know, tested, verified and processed through the official channels. But unfortunately for the government, it loses control of that at a fairly low level sometimes
0: since mid-march there have been 1.1 billion media mentions of COVID-19 probably a lot more now given that another three weeks have passed since then and that drastically exceeds any prior virus outbreaks what is it about COVID-19 that has grabbed the attention of world media
1: I think it's um, just the impact of this virus being global means that everyone is talking about it. You're seeing advanced developed economies having to shut down to deal with the spread of this pandemic. And that has a huge knock on impact right through the global economy. So everyone's talking about it. The impact, you know, at a personal level so far in countries like PNG is quite low, but you're seeing PNG already having to respond, already having to do its own lockdowns and things like that. And in the absence of a vaccine, it, it does look like these sort of measures are going to be part of life for countries right around the world for months to come. So I think you know, everyone's focused on it. Everyone's thinking about what it means for them. And as a result, lots of people are talking about it.
0: Lots of people are talking about it. And there's a lot of different responses to it. Just to come back to an earlier point you made about PNG, some provinces of PNG, I believe, have closed their borders or domestic travel in PNG has stopped Is there a risk that COVID-19 will produce a sort of anti-nationalist response?
1: I think those sort of regional lockdowns, you know, they just build borders around what people already have a bit of a sense of. I don't think it will make it worse. Um, I think, you know, people will use them as the framework for dealing with this. And it may mean that, you know, provinces can then reopen to other provinces sooner than than otherwise might be the case. I don't think it damages PNG nationalism because I think in the end, this is a crisis where the national government does have a big role to play in coordinating that international uh, assistance for PNG and making sure that a province that doesn't want flights to come in um, is able to negotiate with the national government to stop that from happening, for example. So early on, we did see some provinces start to try to impose their own quarantines and things like that. During this crisis, some of them moved ahead of the national government in that regard. But I think it probably just adds to that sense that the national government is doing its best to coordinate this.
0: So, we've talked about the impact on health systems in PNG there in terms of methods to prevent an outbreak from occurring and burdening health systems. What about economic impacts and how would you forecast COVID 19 to economically impact PNG?
1: Well, one of the big impacts straight off has been that um, impact on development assistance and projects. I think that's probably taken a lot of just day-to-day money out of the economy of cities like Port Moresby. And if projects are put off, delayed, things like that, money that was going to be spent in PNG's economy won't be spent. Obviously, a massive impact on tourism. And PNG hasn't had a huge economic reliance on tourism, but it has been growing, and things like cruise ship tourism, were starting to take off in PNG, I think you can assume that that really isn't going to go anywhere anytime soon. And what PNG has had in niche exotic tourism, you know, those amazing experiences that people can have, cultural and environmental tourism in PNG, are really going to be difficult for people to access for a while. So you've already seen some of the big resorts and the big international destinations in PNG are already being suspended and shut down so that has a direct impact on the people who own those facilities but also the communities that rely on them and that you know that will be a big impact supply chains are going to be an issue for um, global commodities so far png's big mining projects are still in operation and there's been no dramatic impact on them but fly in fly out workforces are affected so you may see some disruption or reduced production as a result of that, which has a knock on effect for PNG's government in terms of royalties and tax revenue. And then there's just the broader economic impact of the shutdown on the urban centres. Um, business is copying it as a result of these shutdowns, and that will have a direct impact. Um, and things like markets, informal economy being hard hit as the big urban centres crack down on street sales, um, sales of betel nuts things like that, that takes cash directly out of people's wallets and that's going to have a big knock-on effect for people in urban centres and stretching out into those sort of garden producers, people who are growing vegetables and produce for the big urban centres as well. So it does, it flows right through. Um, When you get down to the individual level beyond the urban centres, it probably doesn't have a massive impact on people in the subsistence economy, but their ability to access the cash economy I think will be pretty heavily hit.
0: You have a lot of friends in PNG. What's the mood from them? And when you speak to them, are they more concerned about the health impacts or the economic impacts?
1: Uh, I think at the moment it's health. I think people are quite worried about health impacts. It, it It really is important, I think, for PNG that as much as can be is done to keep the virus suppressed and out of PNG because the health system will really struggle with a wave of respiratory illness. Um, it already struggles with so much day-to-day. So I think people are really focused on the health side of things, um, but the economic side is going to be tough, people who work in business and things like that. That said, there's lots of innovation. You know, People will find innovative ways to make money amidst something like this. So you know, I, I don't discount that capacity, but I think right now people are worried about health. They're worried about what this what this means if this gets um, into wide circulation in PNG and what that means for them and their family, elderly relatives and things like that.
0: So to close, people who've worked in PNG long-term like yourself tend to fall into two camps, the the pessimists and the optimists. I think I know the answer to this, but <laughs> <laughs> okay. but which camp would you fall into?
1: I'm very much an optimist. Um, I think PNG has some of the most amazing things going for it in the world and people right across PNG know know what they have in terms of their wealth and resources and everyone has opportunity to do things with it. There are huge challenges, big issues to tackle but it's PNG people um, finding solutions to that that is the key to PNG's future. and you know people are doing that every day and they don't need people like me, from outside telling them how to do it. But, gee, I I really appreciate being able to be friends with people in PNG and, um, you know, connecting them to people here in Australia. That's the work I do at Lowy Institute, is that people-to-people connections. Yeah, I just, um, I think PNG has so much potential and opportunity ahead of it and is, uh, is in a really good place to deal with all sorts of things going on in the world right now. Thanks, Shane. Cheers, Rachel.
0: That's it for episode 73 with Shane McLeod. Tune in next week to hear about what one major Australian NGO is doing in response to both COVID-19 and Cyclone Harold in the Pacific. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre, part of the Australian National University. See you next week.